Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, welcome to the news, the last news of the year. We actually thought, I think last year we did sort of just a whole review of the year and had like as many people as close to everybody here as we could, but we can't do that this year, partly because Carolyn Payne takes up so much room now. Um, because of <laughs> explain that. Well, she needs two chairs because she has yeah. a broken ankle. Um, and uh, plus, remember, like, was anybody on that show? Yes. Uh, yeah. So we had to keep moving people around, right? I because loved you, it. Yeah. Well, what are we so going to do over here? That's true. I can like, scoot. <laughs> I can, like, glide <laughs> on the around. chairs. Right. So Carolyn Payne uh, has a broken ankle. That's not the main thing about her, though. She's an actress, comedian, dancer, founder and choreographer, and, but not this year a dancer uh, in uh, the Kinetic Dance uh, Ensemble. Uh, they just got through their Nutcracker Sweet and Spicy, the highlight of the Hartford holiday season. Tanisha Dugan is a producing associate at TheaterWorks in Hartford. Rich Holland uh, is principal and design director at CoLab in Hartford, and Bill Yu. Eastman, director of the Media Literacy and Digital Culture uh, Graduate Program, School of Communication and Media Arts at Sacred Heart University. I don't even know why we have four news panelists uh, <laughs> this time, but it could be uh, like if you like if the trainers pull you out of the game or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Really, <laughs> she can't she can't start the second half. She's just not up to it. Um, <laughs> All right, so uh, what we're going to do in the second second segment today is talk about The Crown, which is the uh, hit series. I think it's fair to call it a hit series on uh, Netflix. Also, supposedly the most expensive TV series ever made. Um, and that's because they actually have to, like, build a, you know, <laughs> Buckingham Palace. You build Buckingham stuff Palace like for it. It really, takes, really costs a lot of money. Whereas, like, on Game of Thrones, it's, they just do green screens and stuff like that. All right, so, but that's still to come. In the beginning uh, of the show, we're going to talk about... Uh, I think sort of an article that has triggered a debate about something called sensitivity readers in the publishing industry. We may or may not fold into this something about Bono. I don't know whether we'll get there or not. But um, although making fun of Bono is so much fun that it's kind of like it would be a shame if we did. Um, and, uh, but right now we're going to talk about an article by Alexandra Alter in last Sunday's New York Times. It links out to a whole bunch of other articles as well. Uh, as well. The headline was a little bit provocative. In an era of online outrage, do sensitivity readers result in better books or censorship? Um, I'll try to summarize the article. It's about the fact that certain books for young adult readers and children um, are passed through now what are called sensitivity readers at publishing houses. They, they read from the perspective usually of some ethnicity or minority group or gender difference or something like that and make sure that 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 outlook is accurately reflective, uh, reflected. But I think the article sort of describes more than that. It describes certain books that are being pulled from the market uh, often after they encounter online outrage from um, early readers, even if they have been through the sensitivity reader gauntlet. And so anyway, I mean, we have, there's, a lot th there, there's a lot to say about this. Um, I guess, Rich, maybe we'll start with you because I think maybe y you, I mean, all of us have sort of different takes on this thing. Um, uh, I sense for you that you, you in some ways think that this notion is probably a pretty healthy development. Yeah. Well, so the framing of the, uh, of the headline is particularly binary. So it's saying like this, uh, having folks who review your work 
through a um, through a specific cultural filter, uh, will they make the book better, or will they make the book worse? Well, I mean, if you're forced to answer that question, then you know, then then you fall into the trap. You know, I think that what these what the potential of the uh, of sensitivity readers is is to create intentionality, right? And I mean, so uh, did you actually mean to say this? Um, and, and I think that one could say the same thing with a with a grammar checker. You know, is the way you're you're wording this is this really what you meant? And then you get a choice to say, yeah, that's what I meant, or no, that's not what I meant. Um, I understand that there's some concerns about, um, you know, are we editing people's thoughts? Should we let this stuff actually play out live um, uh, and, you know, and let this go to market and let uh, these conversations happen in the market as opposed to a preempted conversation? Um, I think that that's kind of got limited value, right? Because I take a look at, uh, at what the individual author's benefit is, um, and I think that they get the full benefit of the ex- of the experience of recognizing what they're actually biasing into their work, whether it's in the market or prior to the market, um, so so I think that that kind of that that question gets neutralized about whether people grow individually um, uh, through this editing process. So I think as a as a tool that um, that clarifies an intention and makes sure what's in your book is what you want in your book, it's great. Now. If what that's leading to is a kind of cowardice on the part of 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 the publishers uh, who are more concerned with um, uh, with making money and selling books than than producing good content, perhaps uh, that could be a problem. But I don't think that the fault there is on the um, is on uh, on the review and the critique. I think the fault fault there is on you know what folks are ready to publish. Yeah, I mean, Tanisha, it seems like it's 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 not just the one thing, right? It's not the idea of sensitivity readers because maybe used in the discerning way that Rich is describing, maybe they could be a good thing. But the problem is it's they're not operating in a vacuum. These books come out. Sometimes the early readings are trigger these online furors, uh, which are often added to by people who haven't even read the book but have decided <laughs> to chime in that the book is disgusting or evil or depraved or racist or, or something like that. Uh, publishers are pulling books off the market. One book called When We Were Fierce has been indefinitely shelved since oh, last August. Um, and so that's the question. Maybe, maybe the question is sensitivity readers might be a good idea if, they, if we can tr- trust the publishing industry to handle them responsibly and courageously. Yeah, I think that is um, possibly a rubric to use. But I also think we don't really know how these conversations are happening between author and sensitivity reader. Um, And the article doesn't illuminate what those conversations look like, really. And so for me, that's sort of where the juice is. Mm -hmm. Because if the person who is is to, you know, in your example... um, asking you, is this what you really mean? And then you're having a conversation. Well, yes, that is what I really mean. I am trying to uh, illuminate a particular kind of person or particular kind of life or um, way of thinking. Um, And that sensitivity reader says, okay, well, you've definitely done that. It may be offensive. And the author then stands behind their intention um, and goes forward with that. And then the conversation with the publishing house becomes, well, this is the book that the writer wants to write. Do you feel comfortable publishing it. That to me is a little bit different than um, let's scrub your writing of anything that may trigger anybody. Um, Because I I find a little bit of um, 
I, I question the idea that selling the books is dependent on its comfort level. I actually think there's a certain degree of outrage that is in, inherent in the way in which uh, we purchase things nowadays. Um, I love a hate purchase as much as I do a love purchase. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, if we're coming from a straight capitalist perspective, I think you let the art do or the artist do what they think what fulfill their vision and let things fall as they may. We may not live in that world anymore, but I hope we, we get there. Although, but, Bill, you thought there was something kind of corporately self-protective about some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that the impulse behind this could potentially be a really positive thing. I mean, if we think about this as organic or grassroots in any way, I think this is a lot about people who have for long been underrepresented or misrepresented saying like we're not just going to sit back and take that anymore we want to you know have some voice about how you are representing us but i'm not sure that it is how organic it really is or if it's kind of a public relations move mm-hmm by the public relations industries, the publishing industries, as a response to what they're worried about in terms of online outrage. We're going to try to stop the online outrage before it begins because we're concerned about our public image and selling our books rather than because we're really concerned about how people are being represented. And even worse and maybe more cynical, as I looked at the photos in that article, mm-hmm. it also feels like a depository for diversity hiring where you put all of the people of color that you want to have at your publishing house and you put them in these jobs exactly. where they are then speaking for the people, which is right. You know, right. Which and is I an think, right there. I think <laughs> that's absolutely correct. And in one of the articles that we read, they even talked about, well, this is opening up more you know, jobs for, pe- for, for, for diverse people in the publishing industry. But my response to that is, how about actually publishing their books? Mm-hmm. If you want or actual... Or making them really, really legit editors. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so Carolyn, um, one, of the, one of the things described in that New York Times article was an author named Laura Moriarty. I think her book is called American Heart. Uh, it's a, um, a book about um, prejudice and, and more than prejudice, persecution of Muslims and about a white protagonist who decides to do something about it. This is, once again, a young adult novel. She actually did everything right. She consulted with Muslim people as she was writing the book. Uh, Then her publisher had two sensitivity readers uh, read the book from a Muslim perspective. Um, Then the book was reviewed in Kirkus by a Muslim or Muslim Muslim American female critic and given a star, the coveted star, and a very positive review. And then there was one of these online outrage uh, storms that even has caused Kirkus to remove its star, rewrite its review. And it's one of these things, I mean, I don't know, it's, I, I, since you're a comedian, among other things, I connected to uh, a little bit of like Seinfeld and Chris Rock refusing to perform on college campuses anymore. (laughs) It's like, you can't win this game. Yeah, I think for me, this article, because one of the things that I struggle with as a comedian is being willing to just kind of like push that envelope and like say things that you know might like put people on edge just because sometimes that push is like part of that dialogue in comedy and finding things that you that that are uncomfortable like living in that space and 
the online outrage is with everything. I feel like everything online leads to outrage. There is no road on the internet that leads to a happy ending. And in some ways, I think that there it's a marketing ploy because you read these things and it you do. You hate buy. You hate watch because you've read so many bad things about it and you're just going into it wanting to just see this like lowest common denominator, like scum of existence piece of literature or a TV show or a movie. And then you you end up judging it for yourself and you see what they're saying, but you're like, wow, that did not warrant that at all. Um, one of the things I binge watched this week was uh, that movie on Netflix with Will Smith. This is embarrassing. I can't even remember the oh, title. Bright. Bright. Thank you. I want to say Blaze, but I knew that wasn't it. Um, and, you know, everyone's loving that. Like, it's getting these amazing reviews. And uh, it was an example of something that I watched thinking it was going to be great because there wasn't, you know, all this like online rage about it. And honestly, if I was somebody who sat around and went online, I'd have some online rage about that. So it just goes to show that everyone is going to be entitled to an opinion. And and I just think that this trying to be sensitive is, yes, there is there is an important way to go about this and to not put out inflammatory things into a world that is filled with this, you know, underlying flame and rage. But I think at the same time, we do need sometimes a little bit more provocation. I'm not against the flames. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, I I think to me, if we're using, it gets back to this idea of authenticity for me, right? Mm -hmm. If we're using um, uh, uh, brand uh, brand politics, political correctness or political sensitivity uh, as as a means of brand insurance, um, uh, then, um, then what are we really doing? That's nothing. That's just right. that's just that's inauthentic. That's you know that's closeted every kind of ism that I can imagine. Um, uh, you know because you're not actually really getting into the weeds of what the issues are at all. You're doing everything you can to avoid criticism, and uh, and that to me is you know is the beginning of the death of culture. Um, uh, so that might be a bit hyperbolic, um, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I still get back to uh, this idea of like you know, let's have these conversations and let's really start to know because, um, and and I guess in a way this is where Bono comes into this. Uh, the, the well thing, done. The well, thing that, <laughs> well circled. Sir. The thing that kind of bugs I'm the host, me, and I couldn't figure out how to do that. So <laughs> the, the thing that bugs me uh, more uh, than this idea of of you know, I had my I had this idea reviewed, mm-hmm. and I stand behind it is putting things out into the universe that you actually mean to put out into the universe. And when you're met with criticism, you step into the like, oh, golly gee, I didn't really mean mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Who, me? Mm-hmm. I'm Bono. And, um, and <laughs> we should explain not, that Bo- the, what yeah. Bono has to do with this is that in an interview, uh, in a much larger context, he said that uh, girly music, as he put it, was uh, becoming beginning to dominate rock and roll and uh, took some heat about that. Yeah, and, and I think he should take some heat about that. And, and I don't think that he should be taking, you know, Al Franken heat about it. And I don't think that he should be taking uh, certainly not Weinstein heat about it. <laughs> but, you know, but until you you step up and say, like, yeah, that was a bad call, you kind of earn the heat until you take it off yourself. I like the taxonomy of heat. Uh, that's that's terrific. <laughs> well, so I, I want to talk to everybody about this. But, Bill, I'll start over here with you. I mean, one of the other questions that comes up here is to what degree can somebody outside a culture write about that culture? Uh, it's one of the ways in w- which the need for 
sensitivity readers. And by the way, I agree with Rich that they should probably call it something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just sounds it just sounds so 2017. Uh, yeah, well, I don't see. I'm not going to Bono. I will not Bono. I will. I will not Bono. Um, Flamethrower. I can't help myself. <laughs> right. but wait, see, wait, I like that. Bono's a verb now. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah. To, I am trying to make Bono a verb right now. Verb yeah. and an adjective. Um, so there's, I mean, and this is an old, old question, right? And what are the, among the things cited were, you know, I mean, Styron writing Confessions of Nat Turner, or, you know, I mean, take your pick. Um, and to me, well, anyway, I'd be interested to hear what, I'll just, I want to hear what the panel says. Well, um, there is no such thing as an unbiased point of view, and mine is certainly biased about this, because I wrote a book about Spike Lee's films. Mm-hmm. And I am not a man of color. So if we went, if we took this to its logical extension, should I not have been able to write that book? Um, mm-hmm. There, I'm sure. But I, did I ha- totally I, assume you were a black man, <laughs> having not met you and just read the emails and saw the book. He's got brother all over. Him. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about that offline. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> offline? Uh, well, in some ways, yeah. So, you know, I stand by what I wrote, but I'm sure there were some blind spots Mm -hmm. in it. And in some ways, I might have welcomed a sensitivity reader while I was doing that work. I hate the name, by the way. Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem is... The, the what this is being called, mm-hmm. but I would have appreciated that type of feedback um, from from diverse readers to to you know kind of point out to me like well what about this point that you're making? Have you thought about this? I would not have wanted it to to function as like a type of censorship mm-hmm. or to be told that no you are not someone who is allowed to write this book. So I think that that can go too far as well in terms of, you know, questions of um, who can speak and, and, and cultural appropriation. I don't know. Tanisha, this where do you fall? It is a hard it's one, It's right? so hard for me because I spend so much time in my work um, trying to align people to the themes of the work they're doing because I actually think that it does enrich the work ultimately. Um, I... Also, I'm a person who believes in intersectionality, so I think that you can write about all different aspects of yourself. You are a man working in media, and so you can come from that perspective and offer that. Um, but it's, it is hard for me because I agree there are some great works written by people who are so outside of an experience, and that is what imagination and art making is at its at its heart. Um, but I think that there is something to be said if authenticity is where you, is your aim um, that I think it's difficult to achieve that without at least the bumpers of people who come from that life around you. Yeah, I think it. I don't know. I mean, Rich, one of the things I pointed out in the emails was uh, I went, a couple of years ago for a show. I was up in Lenox watching Merchant of Venice, um, mm-hmm. which I can guarantee you, no sensitivity reader would have allowed William. They would have talked, tried to talk William Shakespeare out of this anyway. Right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and I had these Jewish women sitting behind me who were just not having it. I mean, mm-hmm. they were just not having it. And so we did a little forum after that. Uh, did a, we did a radio show with Jonathan Epstein, who played uh, Shylock in that production, and I talked about those women. And he goes. Well, good. They weren't having it. Why should they have it? But you want to have that play and have that conversation. And I mean, Shakespeare doesn't probably really know that much other than being fabulously imaginative. 
like whatever his idea of a Jew was at that moment in history was probably somewhat flawed. And and I and but like he wrote it anyway, yeah. and then we have to live with it one way or another. I see absolutely no value in retroactive social norming. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, what history was is what history was, um, <laughs> and you know, and and Huck Finn can say all kind. We could say all kinds of things about Huck Finn and you know what was in that book, um, and we can teach it in classrooms. And when we teach it in classrooms and not bring it into the modern context you know, of what's fitfully wrong mm. and, you know, in, in anti-evolution in that book mm. is where we go wrong. Well, you said um, a really interesting thing before that, which was that uh, you, you said it apropos, I think, of Bono. Mm. But you said that there's a difference between putting something out there that causes trouble and then acknowledging that and embracing that or whatever, mm-hmm. or as opposed to going, oh, I just had no idea, you know, mm-hmm. um, like... <laughs> Mm-hmm. So to me, like the, the most objectionable work of popular culture in American history is probably maybe the most popular work of popular culture in American history. It's Gone with the Wind. Oh, yeah. God, yes. yeah. yeah. But, That's exactly you know, what I was just going to reference. Right. That, but, but Margaret Mitchell never said she wasn't a racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she kind of enjoyed being a racist. But she wasn't asked to either. Right. Right. I, I was right. going to cite that as an example. Like, imagine if Gone with the Wind had had to go through sensitivity readers or sensitivity viewers come the film. Well, I would say Can the I world would be think, a better place without yeah, Gone actually, with the Wind in it. If I may add, yeah. I think that Gone with the Wind probably did go through sensitivity readers, and that's exactly people. where it ended up. Yeah. You know, I think that the stuff that was going on there was a hell of a lot worse than what's in Gone what with is. the Wind right now, well, frankly. From book, from book to movie, there was definitely yeah. some sensitivity okay. reading because mm-hmm. the studios just wouldn't let some of that stuff stand. But it's still a pretty, you yeah. know. Like, but, the, but that's the problem with it, though, mm-hmm. right? That it covers it covers up and it whitewashes and i use that phrase literally i mean i I think that is the problem with it that it doesn't reveal the horror right that this is all just so wonderful and everyone's just so happy with all right and that came from probably a sensitivity reader situation (laughs) i think that's why i think sometimes you're better off having that that flame like poking that and getting that out there and documenting a perspective so that it's out in the open to talk about more does it matter if that provocation is intentional or not though well and i you know i've gone with the wind's a great example too because there are all kinds of as donald trump would say very nice people uh, but i really mean <laughs> very really nice great clothes <laughs> yeah. i'm sorry no, no but really, like, very, very nice people who like gone with the wind I, I mentioned in my email i was interviewing bernie sanders's wife during the campaign and it was either her favorite book or her favorite movie, movie. i can't remember what was movie okay mm-hmm. and mm. I, I was like what mm. <laughs> so i logged i <laughs> i i turned that movie on it was probably in the middle or towards the end um, mm. And I've actually never seen it through because all I saw was this black woman turning to camera and saying, I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. And I was like, get this away from me. <laughs> you know, that's I Academy just, Award winner. Right. I just can't hang in well, with that. Well, we could go nonsense. back to Birth of a Nation, right, as a celebration but, of but, the KKK. But people know what that is. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody knows what that is. I mean, he may be a, Griffith may be a great filmmaker. Okay. We can all say about that, but everybody knows what that is. I think Gone with the Wind is much more stealth racism and mm-hmm. stealth mm-hmm. Yes. celebration of slavery. It makes yes. slavery look like this rather charming institution. Mm-hmm. No, I remember in high school, because uh, I'm that old, like a bunch of, uh, you know, white girls in my classes reading Gone with the wind and absolutely falling in love with it as a romance novel. Mm-hmm. Right. Which That's, it works very well 
class, mm-hmm. but it's still anyway. Right. We have to. And, we, okay, you have the last word. And I was just going to say they were in their mind. They're embracing the romance and deleting all of the context that it's set in, and and right. I mean there's something to that. That is a whole other problem. Framing but, is important. That's right. a question. I'm curious if they're actually deleting. Right. Well, we have mm-hmm. to go. We have to move on to the to the crown, where we will have, I think, a similarly divided. I, I tell you, we could have just printed the published the emails that led up to the show and not done the show. The emails were so interesting, but but we didn't. We're doing the show, so the crown is next. All right, we are back with the news here in studio. Uh, it's a cast of thousands. Well, it's a cast of four. Anyway, it's uh, Bill Usman. I'm not going to say everybody's titles right now. We'll be here all day. Uh, Bill Usman, Tanisha Dugan, Rich Holland, and Carolyn Payne are all with me. Uh, we've been watching the nose. In the nose. We've been watching The Crown. The Crown and the Nose sounds like kind of a cozy little pub somewhere. Yes, uh, yeah. I drink there. Watching the nose would be fun. Right, actually. watching the nose would be good, yeah. So um, Claire Foy is watching the nose right now. We're watching The Crown, in which Claire Foy plays Queen Elizabeth II. Um, it's uh, been on for two seasons. It is the most expensive TV show ever made. Uh, it's a lot of other things as well. It, and it is sort of a bullet train racing through history uh, across the British landscape and the landscape of the world uh, through the eyes of a very unusual group of people, people who have a very um, uh, different perspective from the rest of us, the royal family of England. So uh, first of all, let's uh, begin with, with a clip from the series. I think we are going to hear a clip from a, a uh, one of the episodes of the second season in which uh, a peer, a lord, uh, winds up calling out Queen Elizabeth for the fact that she, even by the standards of that time, which was 1957, I can't, I can't remember what year it is in the series, she is not at all in the least bit woke. Is my voice all right? You can't understand me. Yes. Not too strangled. Not too much pain in the neck. No. Good. So, what is it that you'd have me change? It's not so much what I'd have you change, just an acknowledgement that it has changed. What? Everything. And to prepare yourself for the fact we now live in a time where people like me... Can say exactly what they think. Yes. In any way they want. Yes. And remind me, why is that, exactly? Because the age of deference is over. And what is left without deference? Anarchy. Equality. How can it be equality when I cannot return the fire? You can. But I struggle to think of a moment in history where it has worked to a monarch's advantage to return fire on their own people. But you have managed to think of how this monarch might use something to her advantage. I have. And that same monarch is sitting before, forgive me, a failed politician and an unrecognized journalist and taking his advice on how to do her job. The situation is as baffling to me as it is to you, Your Majesty. All right, that is from the second season of The Crown. So, Rich, I know you have, have some problems with this series. <laughs> but you've got a lot of problems with this series. But, but some of those problems, are, I think, are almost summed up in that clip a little bit. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Aye, aye. Um, so, <laughs> we may have to request extra time from here and now. <laughs> All right. So, the, to me, the biggest problem that I have with this, with 
this series is uh, is personal. It's about a a, a matter of perspective. Um, uh, I can't look at these people uh, and uh, see them through any sort of uh, Gaussian screen. I can't see them through beautiful. I can't see uh, what the beautiful light masks. You know, uh, I see people who are who are brutal killers in a, in an intense uh, chess game of managing power. Um, and uh, I was born uh, to to refute that, uh, and so I can't be conned. Uh, into into finding any sort of glamorization, into seeing that as anything that's glamorous or uh, or desirable, or and frankly, I delight uh, at its growing irre- uh, irrelevance. Um, so when I take a look at at a, a series like this, um, that to your point, uh, Colin is like a, a bullet train or an express train uh, that picks intentionally the stops that it's going to stop at. And the neighborhoods that it's going to skip, um, uh, you know, I take a look at you know this masterpiece of of power manipulation. Uh, I see filmmakers who uh, who strike me uh, as wanting to uh, adore a thing uh, that is that creates a tremendous amount of injury, and so I can't get behind it. I don't know. Tanisha, do you not buy the argument that this is a lens of adoration all the way through? It seems to me that one of the – or even a lens of the exaltation of power. It seems that one of – our general relationship with the royal, royal family for decades now has been this is a bunch of chronically unhappy people who routinely <laughs> do not get what they want. <laughs> and the fact that they you know, are incredibly rich and live among all these trappings has not necessarily entitled them to the lives that they've wanted. Yeah, I, I think I um – I buck against the idea that this um, series looks at them through a gauze uh, filtered lens. Um, the trappings of their life is that of privilege. That's that is what it is, um, and we all um, are attracted to glitter. But I think what I like about uh, the show is that, as I said in in the emails. Criminality exists across all castes, and I don't think that I am um, that my appreciation for the work um, or the show um, negates that fact, which is that I can see that they are bad people, but I also can see the humanness about that, um, and that's the thing that I'm interested in investigating, and that's the thing that I uh, appreciate about what the show investigates that. Um, Hitler had family and a mother and and danced and and sang and also did horrible things. I don't think demonizing and avoiding that humanness actually gets us closer to, um, I don't want to say erasing because that seems so naive and silly, Um, but um, moving moving towards a greater understanding um, by putting them in this box of... uh, only, only the bad parts of human nature can they uh, encompass, and not, and not seeing their full humanity, which is the thing that I. I mean, it's uh, interesting about it. because you aren't, you don't choose. Like they, you're not, you don't choose what you're born into and what your circumstances are. And this show does do an amazing job. I, 
I mean, I, I can't really 100% say that I enjoyed the show. I didn't, like, hate it, hate it, like most things that I have to watch for this show. But I'm not going to tell you to, like, rush and watch it. And this is coming from somebody who has to spend the next four weeks on a couch. I will not be, like, uh, you know, watching oh. The Crown. Sorry. But um, I thought that this show was at its best when you saw these characters in these very, you know, there's there, there are moments that are relatable uh, as a human, just on that raw human level. Um, and, and that is thanks, I think, to the amazing acting. I, I do think that the actors are spectacular in it. I think that that's where the show is at its mm-hmm. best, is these actors bringing out the, the struggle, like where you, you see a woman who this is her reality that and, and and there's this underlying she probably would give anything to not have to be in that reality. She says that frequently. That, yeah. that she doesn't she'd rather not have any of this. Yeah. Stuff. So, by the way, don't get too attached to these actors because there's going to be a season three and none of them are in it. They're all being sacked. Um, I mean, you know. Genially sacked. So, <laughs> so Bill, uh, you had uh, a lot of ambivalence. Not even ambivalence. You had a lot of resistance to the idea of watching the series. Yes, Kick, I did. Kicking and screaming, I think, was the term that you <laughs> used. And then you kind of got locked in. Yeah. Um, true confession. Um, <laughs> I did not want to watch this show. Uh, when it first appeared, I refused to watch it. I did not want to like this show um, to the extent that uh, when I told my wife that I was being called to duty uh, by Colin to watch this show, she she literally started laughing at me. Um, I despise the monarchy. Um, just like Rich said, I despise everything that they've done. I despise everything that they stand for. And yet this particular piece of media completely and totally seduced me. I admit it. I, I, was, I was seduced by this. I was seduced by the acting, the writing, the look of it, the feel of it, the music, the, the amazing faces of some of the people who were cast. Mm-hmm. All of it just sucked me in. And I think that's actually the danger of it. Mm-hmm. And, oh. and, and, and there is oh. a connection here to Gone, gone, with, the, with, gone the with the Crown. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Gone right? with the Crown. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think this is how propaganda works. Yep. That it made me forget momentarily about my resistance. I had to keep saying to myself, okay, this is not really Queen Elizabeth. This is Claire Foy, who is amazing and seductive and beautiful, but this is not Queen Elizabeth II. These are not the people who did these horrible things. You know, I wonder so what like, a sensitivity reader from Egypt would have yeah. said about the depiction of what happened oh, in the goodness. Suez Canal. You know, the, so, so, so to me, it's it, it's simultaneously an amazing piece of media that is incredibly seductive, but also dangerous because of that. I, I don't so know. Like, can I, I, don't can I just say? say can I just say, as an Irish American and the spawn of a large Irish Catholic, and that's coming. Uh, yeah, that's coming. I mean, season seven, yeah. season three, excuse me, will be. I th- think a lot about that. It will be about Princess Margaret calling uh, the Irish pigs, and it'll be about the killing of probably the most sympathetic character in, in the series, Dickie Mountbatten, the blowing up uh, of Dickie Mountbatten by the by the IRA, and I. I don't know. Like, first of all, one thing that I would say is that the crown is powerless and has been powerless for a really long time. I don't think that Queen Elizabeth really had the ability to direct British policy at the time, even of the Suez crisis. So it's kind of hard for me to – as I watch this series, I feel like it's pretty easy to get, you know, which parts of these uh, of this series is uh, – 
uh, are about objectionable people uh, mm-hmm. associated with an objectionable institution, and which part, as Carolyn is saying, are human about human beings who never particularly chose their fate. They're just sort of there trying to figure out what to do with all, with all that and having complex ideas of duty. We often see that they are, as I said at the beginning, miserable. I mean, I hadn't quite understood how completely miserable and horrible Prince Philip's childhood was <laughs> and how determined he was to foist that exact paradigm onto poor Prince Charles. Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like it's it's a mixed enough thing. So, so maybe it's I, a lot like the great Gatsby in that way. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm in being, in being invited to love and worship the, and I exalt agree. these people. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, so um, I just want to key on to what you were saying, Bill, about this this idea of, of it being a – of the propaganda tools um, that are still alive in our media uh, around um, around manifesting these ideas of you know of glorious white privilege, um, there's uh, in this in this movie there were uh, these two photographers that were being drawn, and those were to me. I mean, you know, it might be trade issues uh, um, based on you know what I do professionally, but they were the interesting part. You know, mm-hmm. to to watch that subtext of media propaganda run through uh, and media manipulation run through this series. Um, on one hand, uh, we had um, Cecil Beaton, uh, um, who uh, even as he was taking the photographs of these folks, you could hear the language that he's speaking to right. them to try and get them in character. Mm-hmm. He's selling them the myth of who they are, uh, so that they could so that they could present that back to him. <coughs> Uh, so that that's what could get shared out in all of its lovely pink light, um, and and you know, and frankly, uh, the exact lighting that was replicated over and over in every scene of this movie, um, and uh, and then um, you had uh, Tony Armstrong Jones on the other hand, uh, who seemed determined to get under this thing and get to the true essence of who at least Princess Margaret. Uh, was but <laughs> I, but interestingly enough, she's probably the one who is most uh, uh, most unmonarchy <laughs> of mm-hmm. all of these folks. Um, you know, the one who had abdicated the the you know the opportunity to actually even follow through with uh, with any kind of real leadership in in this family. Um, but taking a look at uh, at this this tension uh, between what's propaganda and what's authentic uh, set up a dynamic with which I was watching this entire series. You know, so I was asking that question every step of the way. But what's I think here's real a question. and what's yeah, baloney? Because I feel like if if we're going to be look at your own uh Instagram, right? Your mm-hmm. Instagram to me and I'm not saying yours personally, I'm saying oh, yeah, ones like, yeah. the, the royal <laughs> you. One that would be a very personal attack. <laughs> um, I don't have an Instagram, so there. <laughs> and it does exactly that. It shows the version of you that you want to present. And it has nothing to do with the pieces that are underneath. Those are not the things that we show in a public f- f- form. And you can and I think we can pretend to have whatever conversation we want to have about it, about how authentic that actually is or how authentic your personal version of that is. But truthfully, it is a show. And we mm-hmm. all participate in the show, regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not we are born into mm-hmm. privilege, we are an oligarch, we are Trump, or we are the queen, or you're Tanisha Dugan. You know, We participate in the show of life because that is 
the way in which the life is built. And in season one, uh, this is what Churchill hates so much about that portrait that was painted of him, right? That it shows him as he actually is, Mm -hmm. an aging, weak, frail man, which was, I think, a great metaphor for the fears of the British Empire Mm -hmm. themselves, seeing themselves as weak and and, and aging and and, and past their prime. And we're going to have to wrap this up, and it's too bad. I could talk about this for an hour. Mm -hmm. I do want to say, I think this, this, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this series is that even in England right now, this series is seen as poking a stick in exactly the way that people are talking about right now. It's some of the most cherished myths. So Philip is is portrayed as much more of an adulterer and at times, you know, maybe even in the case of the Profuma scandal, a real bounder and toxic kind of person. He's my favorite, actually, (laughs) in the show. He is just so awful that I I really enjoyed, like, that was, he captivated me the most. And even though the fascist leanings of Edward VIII are just a matter of historical record, this series goes further and in a way that has been very discomforting to the the British public. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, even though I think they get everything wrong about it, I think the filmmakers say, and... You know, don't you Americans sit there and look at all this and what happily watch our myths explode? Because we're going to show you the, you the Kennedys, and we're going to, in a very awkward way, strip off some of that myth too. Because you guys are every bit as bad as we are about believing your own propaganda. Uh, anyway, we have to stop. So I'm sorry for having the last word, but I was feeling passionate. All right, we're going to uh, come back and we're going to do some recommendations. Today's show is produced by Queen Betsy I, the Duke of Pants, Lady Amanda Fish, and me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Helen Mirren. On Monday, revisit our show about time. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, we've had a lively nose panel here, and now it's time. We'll have Carolyn go last because I think people should recommend things that Carolyn, who has a broken ankle, just to repeat, um, <laughs> and is going to be housebound and couchbound for quite a while. Yes, Hopefully, and large gifts and alcohol are yeah. greatly appreciated right. during that time. But also things to watch and read and listen to and think about and stuff like that. <laughs> so, uh, Bill, you go first. Okay. So um, I had a lot, actually, this You know, this past year, I had to find some culture to help me deal with the reality uh, that we're living in. And we, we, we don't, we haven't, it takes a while to create books and movies and and television shows. So we haven't, I think, yet fully gotten to that moment where artists are going to respond to the political situation that we find ourselves in but I did but 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 there was a lot that 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 still still spoke to me in relationship to that so the, so the first thing I want to endorse um, is a double feature of uh, two documentaries uh, I am not your Negro which was um, built from the words of James Baldwin uh, but I think very much speaks to the moment that we're living in. And I think that that can be very fruitfully uh, paired with Get Out uh, by Jordan Peele. Yo, homie, yeah. you took one of my recommendations. You can still, no, I'm just playing. And Jonathan McNichol mentioned it also um, when we first started talking about this. It, it, it's worth it. And if you're not sure why I refer to it as a documentary, uh, just just Google um, was <laughs> get out a documentary, and you'll find uh, some interesting commentary about that from 
from uh, Jordan Peele. And then I also want to recommend, uh, endorse um, two nonfiction books by poets. Uh, the first is by Matthew uh, Zapruder, and it's a book called Why Poetry, where I think he makes a really persuasive and well-constructed and elegant argument for why, why poetry should not be overlooked, why we need poetry, why the way we teach poetry actually turns people off to it and makes us think that it's this language that we can't understand when really we can and that it's an essential part of our existence. Um, and then the other one is by Kevin Young, who is uh, an award-winning poet and the new poetry editor of The New Yorker. And um, this is his second nonfiction book, and this one is called Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News. Mm. And he makes a really provocative argument in this book. He goes through the history of these sorts of hoaxes and, and phonies and, 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 and fakes, but he connects them all to the history of race in right. the United States. I'm going to say you did it just there so we don't run out of time. Tanisha, what have you got? Uh, well, I'll go with Get Out to start. Um, and I actually uh, – I'll speak on the documentary piece because those of us who are in the craft know for a fact that it's actually not a documentary. But the reason Jordan goes towards uh, so hard at it as a documentary is that he doesn't want the majority to negate the truth in which this – work of fiction uh, offers um, and every time I see it I see something else and it's, and it's all it's all good he's got a New York Times article that I would check out too which is a great supplementary uh, about his background uh, which sort of illuminates the whys and the wherefores this particular artist took on this kind of work um, the second is um, I'm I'm recommending the artist Solange because the work, although it came out at the fall of uh, 2016, actually toured most of 2017. Um, and she gave us a whiff of a singer, performance artist who was giving us sort of these full stage visual phantasmas that I loved and also put Black Girl Magic front and center and uh, gave us some things like... Um, Cranes in the Sky, which I love. Um, and then finally, I'm going to endorse this little city that we're all in uh, by way of the Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts. And I say that because um, as I work and play in this space, I learn and realize more and more that the architects of culture come from this place, this high school um, that when I went was on Wethersfield Avenue. Um, and it's changed and it has um, become something else. Truly amazing place. We Just because we're going to run out of time, we're going to have to pass the ball down the line. Dang. Now. Cool. Um, so for Caroline, I have three recommendations for you. Uh, um, the first one should be ready about the time that you're off your cast. Um, I want to recommend everybody uh, jump on social media and connect with No Good Market. That's mm -hmm. no as in, yes, I know that, um, Good Market. Uh, uh, you get the opportunity to go to food trucks and to a happening once a month in nice weather uh, where people are actually being real and being in community. 
in uh, in you know in, in showing care and love uh, for each other. And it's in over in Park, Parkville on in uh, Parkville. Bartholomew Street. Exactly. Area, um, next, uh, I want to recommend um, a book that at one point feels like a picture book, uh, but it's so much more than that. Um, it's from a it's a fashion designer's book called um, China Chic. It's Vivian Tam's book, and I've admired her forever. And she takes on the challenges of of uh, a culture that could so e- that has so much been sort of eroticized and and um, and fetishized, and uh, combats that by doing deep research into from where she came. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so every little bit of the culture that she puts into her work has been explored mm-hmm. over over centuries and centuries of history. Do the last one really quick. Last one two minutes really, left in the whole show. Okay, cool. Last one really quick will be uh, go get this children's book and I read it every time I get muddled. It's uh, it's uh, Bob Dylan's Forever Young. It's illustrated by Paul Younger. It's Dylan lyrics set to beautiful illustrations. It slows down the song and boy, it wakes up your activism and your optimism. That's great. Carolyn, do you have any recommendations? Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, There's a show called Hot Date. It's on Pop Network. Um, It is a sketch comedy show. Emily Axford, she's a Chicago-based comedian. She and her husband co-wrote it, co-star in it. It is brilliant. They play this cast of characters. Um, It is really well done, uh, really well done comedy um, that is great for the dark days of winter. And my other recommendation is a rare moment of non-snarky philosophy from me. (laughs) Um, As somebody who is used to moving and being constantly on the go, um, and this year has been a rough year for a lot of people, and this reminded me, this injury and everything this year has just been like one of those things to just keep swimming. I love sharks, and you know, sharks, if they don't swim, most breeds of sharks, if they don't move, they die. And like when this first happened to me, that's how I was feeling. I just felt so stifled. But I realized that this whole year has been a rough year for a lot of people. We're about to enter 2018. We've all just kept moving. And that's what I think is my endorsement for 2018. Keep moving. Keep doing things. And we'll, we'll all get through this. <laughs> all right. I think I'm going to – well, I'll, I can very – you can start playing the music if you want, Wolvie. Um, uh, I will quickly in- endorse uh, – there's a moment in The Queen where Harold Macmillan uh, finds himself being insulted by a comedy group. It's Beyond the Fringe, which was Monty Python <laughs> before there was Monty Python. You might want to discover Beyond the Fringe. You can find some of their stuff uh, on YouTube. Uh, also, Lois Smith, what a great actress. She's the nun in Lady Bird. But she's in a, a film called Marjorie Prime, which I don't have time to describe here. But it's on Amazon. You can uh, watch it, and uh, we might talk about it at a future show. Today. 